All right, it's great to be back at InTown after um, being away for a few weeks, a couple of weeks in Scotland with our kids, and then uh, time leading a group in England thinking about how we see truth and beauty in the writings of uh, people like Tolkien and Lewis. So, good to have my head on my own pillow for a few nights. Looking forward to Tricia coming back tomorrow. Uh, then we're off to General Assembly this week. So, and she's going to have like a 12-hour turnaround between the two. She is amazing. Energizer bunny. Um, we started a series recently on seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. I'll share with you a quote that, that um, sets the stage for how we see Jesus in a part of the Old Testament called the historical books. This is um, a quote written in uh, around the year 1400. So there are people who have been loving Jesus in every nation and uh, every century because good news about him has been spreading around the world for a long, long time. And um, a man from the Netherlands, his name is Thomas, he's from a town named Kempen, so Thomas Akempis is his Latinized form of his name. He wrote a book called The Imitation of Christ. I read these words in my 20s when I was living in Aberdeen, Scotland. I just started a PhD. I was researching how, how is it that, that the life of Christ ought to shape the life of Christian leaders? What would it look like for Christian disciples and leaders to follow and imitate Christ. So you got to read this classic book called The Imitation of Christ if you're going to be studying that, right? So um, somehow I missed this quote 30 years ago, refound it a couple of weeks ago. When you have Christ, you're rich and you have enough. He will be your faithful provider and helper in all things so that you will not need to trust in men. Um, Trisha and I, as I said, just visited Scotland um, with three of our children. Um, we, we went for the first time to Aberdeen, the city where I was doing my PhD work, where I first read this book. I thought I'd reread it this summer, and I have to say, I, I don't think I fully understood these words when I first read them. And this week, looking back at them and going, you know what? Look at the key questions that this quote exposes. Questions that seven centuries later, your heart is still wrestling with every day. Will I have enough? Will I have enough? Will I have the resources I need for coping with all the difficulties of living in this world? And if I don't have those resources, where will I find that kind of help? Who will be my helper? Who will I put my trust in? In the year 1400, there were people wrestling with those questions. You and I are still wrestling with them today. They are the questions of kingship. Every time the Old Testament talks about kings, it's addressing those questions. Will I have enough? Will I have enough? 
Who will I put my trust in? Every time the Old Testament talks about kings, it's therefore pointing us to Jesus. He is the one in whom we will always have enough. He will be the help that we need. We don't have to put our trust in anyone else when our trust is in him. Today, we want to look at the book of 1 Samuel and use some highlights from it to help us see this theme of kingship and how the Old Testament points us to Jesus when it talks about kings. We're going to hear about Israel's desire to have a king, the early chapters of 1 Samuel. Then you'll hear a little bit about their first king, Saul, and how he failed. And then we'll hear just a hint of the next coming king, the second king of Israel, David, a man after God's own heart. All of this pointing us to our ultimate king, Jesus. So, Becky, will you come and read for us some highlights from 1 Samuel? Thank you. Today's scripture reading comes from 1 Samuel, chapters 8, 13, and 16. From chapter 8. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go up before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go, every man, to his city. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bechoroth, son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. From chapter 13. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And from chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The main lesson of today's uh, sermon is don't discriminate against short people. <laughs> That's it. We can leave. <clears throat> Now, let's pray together. There's probably something deeper in here for us than just that. So let's pray. <laughs> Lord God, um, 
thank you for your kindness and goodness to answer the question our hearts ask every day. Um, will I have enough? Who can I trust? Thank you for answering that question through your son, whom we can always trust. And he will never chase us away because we're too tall or too short, because we are um, not enough. He will be the one who is enough. So anyone can come to him anywhere, anytime. Help us to see that goodness in you and in him today, we pray. Amen. Um, the main lesson of today's sermon is you should always listen when a beaver talks. Um, Mr. Beaver in Narnia, you, you meet him in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. If you haven't read that book and you haven't had a chance to hear the wisdom of Mr. Beaver, I would commend it to you. One of his most famous quotes starts with a question, safe. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Mr. Beaver knows the king, a lion named Aslan, and the children he's talking to don't yet know the king. Mr. Beaver gives us a great definition of kingship. Who is a king? What's a king? Um, a king is somebody who's extraordinarily powerful. That's why he says he's not safe. We can't contain his power. He's stronger than we are. He's not a tame lion. Extraordinarily powerful and extraordinarily good. That's who a king is. A person who combines that kind of extraordinary power and goodness together. Um, one way to see Jesus in the Old Testament is to see themes of, of kingship in a part of the Old Testament called the historical books. So we want to learn how to see Jesus. We want, want to say something about why this matters so much, but we have to start right here with what are the historical books again? And um, where would I find them in the scriptures? Um, remember, there are five main divisions in, of the Old Testament. The Pentateuch, the first five, Pinta. Pentateuch just means that five-volume thing. The first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis through Deuteronomy, also known as the Torah, were translated into English, the, the law. Um, doesn't mean that the first five books of the Bible are just a long string of rules. There are plenty of stories about what God has done in the law, the Torah, right? That's the first division. And then the second is the one we're talking about today, the historical books. And then the wisdom books, Job. Proverbs, Psalms, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, those books. And then there are 12 minor prophets and 12 uh, major prophets. Um, and uh, minor and major just have to do with longer and shorter. Um, so the, the longer prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the little book of Lamentations written also by Jeremiah. And then you have 12 minor prophets. Um, notice there's a pattern there. It's all fives and twelves. Five, twelve, five, five, books in the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, the Torah, 12 historical books, five wisdom books, five major prophets, 
12 minor prophets. Unpacking the historical books a little bit, that's what we're focusing on this morning. The kingship theme is especially strong in this section of the Old Testament. It runs from Joshua through Esther. So after Deuteronomy, you, 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 you read Joshua, Judges, Ruth. There's no king in the book of Joshua. Judges and Ruth talk about the time before a king, and they really highlight how we need a king. Um, and, and then you get into this section, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, when the kingship arises and originates, as we heard this morning, first with Saul, then David, then his son Solomon. And you get these evaluations of which kings were faithful and which were faithless. And that's a major theme throughout this uh, significant chunk of the Old Testament. And you get to Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther also telling the history, historical books of God's people, but they're dealing with the consequences of the failure of the faithless kings who went before them. So kingship is just a major theme in this 12-book chunk of the Old Testament. So that's what the historical books are. Let's answer another question. Why does it matter whether we can see Jesus in the historical books. Well, there's kind of a pragmatic reason, which is like, um, hey, 12 books of history, that's a pretty big chunk of my Old Testament. If Jesus is not there, then um, to say that I have a faith centered on Jesus, it's gonna be hard to kind of like, am I just gonna ignore that big part of my Old Testament? Or am I gonna sort of split my heart up and say Jesus is important to me all the time except when I'm hearing these stories. Uh, so this is kind of a pragmatic thing, but let's think on an even deeper level. What this world needs most is self-giving love. It's the kind of love that's existed in the Trinity from eternity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit giving themselves to one another. What the world needs most is that, a kind of love where, where uh, people say, I will give myself for the good and the joy of another. Even if it costs me a lot, I will give myself in that kind of love. And even if I'm giving that love to people who don't seem especially worthy of it, the world needs that more than anything else. And the only way that we will find strength to show that kind of love is by seeing it. <laughs> we see that kind of love most clearly in Jesus. If we can learn to see Jesus everywhere, in all of Scripture, in all of life, in all of the world that he has made, if we can learn to see him more clearly, then we will be transformed. We will be changed by his grace the love he has shown us will begin to reshape us so that we become able to love other people in that way. We become more free to confess when we have not loved other people in this way. That's why it matters that we learn to see Jesus. So in a sense, learning to see Jesus in this little part of the Old Testament, these 12 books, historical books, it's just a part of a much larger project, which is learning to see all of reality in light of who Jesus is. That's why it matters. All right, so let's learn how to do it. How do we 
How do we see Jesus in the historical books of the Old Testament? Remember, this is the 12 books start after Deuteronomy. Joshua runs through Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. 12 books of the Old Testament talk a lot about kingship. We learn to see Jesus in this part of the Old Testament by looking for what it has to say to us about a king, someone who combines extraordinary power and extraordinary goodness. It's ultimately expressed in self-giving love. Let's talk about a couple of ways to do that. One way is to look for this theme. Look for what the Old Testament, especially the historical books, have to say to us about a king who has power to protect. There's going to be a rhythm here. You've got to learn to see this theme in two ways. On the one hand, seeing what humans want in terms of protection, and then seeing what God actually provides, who Jesus actually is. Because what we want and, and what we need are not always the same thing. Let's start with the what we want. We want protection now. This is why uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, the people come to Samuel the prophet and they say, you know what, we're tired of the arrangement we've had for the past 150 years or so, which is waiting on God to tell us who will protect us when a new threat arises. So if you read uh, Joshua, there's, there's no king. There's lots of conflict. There are lots of um, uh, times when God's people need protection and deliverance from hostile enemies. And each time they have to wait. <laughs> what is God going to do to protect us? You get to the book of Judges. There's no king. All kinds of hostile neighbors threatening Israel. And again, it's, it's wait. Who will deliver us, Lord? I'll tell you. I'll let you know. But there's no plan. There's no like king whose son will reign when he dies, whose son will reign when he dies. And, and so we've got a plan. So we know what the future holds. And finally, Israel is coming to uh, Samuel, the prophet, and saying, we don't like this arrangement. We want protection now. We're kind of tired of waiting. Why? Because the Philistines, big, bad, mighty army on our coast, um, they're getting stronger and stronger. And in the ancient world, when your enemy was getting stronger and stronger, that meant you had good reason to be afraid. Because when another king attacks you, what happens first is starvation. They take all the food. All kinds of suffering, poverty, famine, and death. Not just the soldiers who die during the conquest, but the people who die the long, slow death when the famine strikes. There are good reasons to be afraid in this world. There are a whole lot of ways to suffer in this world. It is right to want protection. We tend to want it right now. Um, and so the people chose a man named Saul. 
you know, hey, we, we want to be like all the other nations. They have a king who's ready and waiting. He's already in position for when the next threat arises. They don't have to figure out who's going to protect them. They know we want a king like that. And so they choose Saul. And uh, Saul turns out to share with them this sense that, hey, we need protection right now. That's why when you get to 1 Samuel 13, the prophet Samuel is saying to Saul, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept God's commandment. This is not Samuel saying, God is looking for a good little rule keeper and you're a bad boy who doesn't keep the rules. So God is taking your toys away from you because you're a bad little boy. That's not what's going on. When you read 1 Samuel, Samuel has said, Saul, the Philistine army is on the move. The first thing God wants you to do is go to a city called Gilgal and wait for seven days. And when I come... I will offer sacrifices, and then you can lead the army out. And Saul says, when crisis is striking, is not the time for a seven-day spiritual retreat to pray and wait on God. I am a leader, and I'm going to lead. And Samuel, you didn't show up when you were supposed to, so I went ahead and made a judgment call, and I made those sacrifices myself. Besides, now here's where Saul shows his true colors. He starts throwing other people under the bus. The whole reason I had to do this is because my people were starting to wander away from camp and because you hadn't come yet and because the Philistines are doing their thing. It's not my fault. I'm a leader. I took charge. We can't wait for God to protect us. Somebody's got to protect us now. Is it wrong to want protection? I live in a world where death is a reality. Is it wrong that I don't want to die? Is it wrong that I don't want to have to cry more tears after losing another loved one, another friend, another family member? Is it wrong? No, it's not wrong. But what we need is not protection now. We need protection forever. This is not the part of the show where I say, look, I'm a Christian pastor, so I know you want real good in your life. I'm going to pull a magic spiritual rabbit out of the hat and ask you to accept spiritual good instead of real good. No. Let's say you get delivered from this army, this battle, this week. Let's say you recover from this sickness this disease, this diagnosis. There's another army coming. There's another battle, battle on the horizon. Even if I don't face death today, I will face it sometime. Jesus offers us protection forever and says, what if, what if I could remake the world so that there's never a need for an army again? What if I could remake the world so that there's no more sorrow or suffering of any kind? What if I could defeat the final enemy, which is death? Every time we want protection now from any kind of suffering, our heart is saying, I want to be protected forever from every kind of suffering. 
And sometimes my heart will latch on to the promise of the now and forget that what I really want is something so big that no human king or leader could ever offer it to me. No human king can stop suffering forever. No human king. I need something bigger. The Old Testament is constantly showing us this. We need protection. We want protection. But we need a protection that is way bigger than any human can provide. And guess what? We also need to protect to be protected from our own arrogance. It isn't just external threats, death, disease, sickness, sorrow, suffering. I need to be protected from the arrogance that says, I don't have time to wait for God. My plan is better than his. How can Saul protect me from that when Saul exudes that from every pore? How can I protect you from that when I'm still learning to wait on God? We need Jesus to protect us from ourselves. And we see in him when this story is completed, a king who trusts God's plan even when it requires costly love of him. Think of Jesus in the moment of crisis. He's with his friends. He says, before the night is over, one of you is going to betray me, and I am going to be crucified. And in this moment of crisis, you know what I need to go do? I need to go pray. I need to go talk to my father. Put your swords away. It's not time for human plans and human wisdom and human might. It is time to say to God, I don't want to have to do this, but not my will. Let yours be done. And on the way to the cross, Jesus doesn't throw us under the bus and say, it's their fault. He says, Father, I will take the blame for what they have done. Extraordinary power, extraordinary goodness. That's what you want. That's what I want. That's the kind of protection we need. Can we keep that in mind as our political cycle is ramping up? Does it ever ramp down, honestly, these days? But it's ramping up again, right? Every candidate is saying, you need to be protected. They're mainly saying, you need to be protected from my opponent. You need to be protected from people who think like my political opposition. You need to be protected. Every party is promising us, you need a king, and we found the right one. Now, we don't call them kings anymore, but... Hey, are you tired of suffering? Are you tired of setbacks? We have a leader who can blaze the path to the promised land. We found the right. Every news cycle is saying, forget about forever. Focus on now. Christian perspective says, we are grateful that God uses human leaders to mitigate suffering and sorrow and even death in this world. Human beings can mitigate those things because we're created in God's image. And we are grateful that God uses faithful leaders to mitigate those realities. But our trust is in the one who will not stop until the last enemy is defeated. Our trust is in the one who gave himself to suffering, who endured death himself so that in resurrection glory he could defeat the grave one day return and share that resurrection life with anybody who puts their trust in him. Human leaders may get our votes, but only Jesus has our hearts. You might want to write that down. 
You might want to remember that for the next nine months. Because every day you're going to be hearing, I don't just want your vote, I want your whole heart. You can trust me. I will make sure you have enough. No. No. What your heart is longing for is a protection bigger than any human being could ever provide. Give your vote faithfully, thoughtfully, but don't give your heart to anybody but Jesus. Can we look at um, one more pattern we might see? In the Old Testament, it shows us a king who's free to love. We don't have a lot of time on this, but we have to say this. What human hearts want is leaders who are outwardly impressive. Why was Saul chosen? He came from a wealthy family. He was a handsome young man. Nobody else in Israel was more handsome than he. He was head and shoulders taller than anybody else. He looked like a warrior. And we want somebody to fight our battles for us. David wasn't like that. Even the prophet Samuel, when he saw David's brothers, said, I think this one is the guy. And God is saying, Samuel, no. No. I'm not interested in the one who looks most outwardly impressive. I'm interested in the heart. David was described in 1 Samuel 13 as a man after God's own heart. Jesus is the greater son of David. He is the only person who ever completely lived as a man after God's own heart. If you lead from a place of being impressive, then you have to stay impressive. You can't afford to admit any weakness. You can't afford really to grow because growing means you had it wrong in the past and you've got it right now. If you lead from this place of being outwardly impressive, then the pressure is always on for you to prove yourself. Anybody in the room starting a new career? You feel that pressure? You got to prove yourself. You got to show that you belong. You got to show that you're more valuable to the company than the person sitting beside you. I know that pressure. You know what they say to PhD students, University of Aberdeen in Scotland? Add to the field of knowledge. Say something nobody else has ever said before. Say it smarter than anybody else ever said it before. Prove yourself. Show that you belong. Read this classic called The Imitation of Christ that's been around for centuries and show where it got it wrong. Fuel your arrogance because you're in your 20s and, you know, you, you, got it, you got it together better than that guy. I mean, he was just Thomas Akempis. Who was he? Netherlands, Netherlands, 14th century, whatever. I know the pressure. Jesus invites us to a place where we learn, like him, to be free to love. If my first priority is proving myself, I am not free to love anybody. 
neither God nor my neighbor. But if I belong to Jesus, then like him, I am free. I am free when every voice on the planet says, David, you are not the right person to be the king. Jesus, you are not the right person to be the Messiah. We're going to kill you. (laughs) Jimmy, you are not the right person to be the husband of Tricia. You are not the right person to be the father of these children. Who are you? You are not the right person to be the pastor of this church. You do not belong here. But in Jesus, you and I have this freedom. We are free to stop trying to prove ourselves. We are free to stop having to please other people. We are free to give ourselves completely to him. Every other voice on the face of the planet can say, you are the wrong one. You don't belong. You're not enough. And if one voice is saying, no, you're enough. That's all we need. And every voice on the face of the planet was saying to Jesus, you are the wrong one. He hung on the cross and said, Father, I know who I am. I am your son. I don't need any other voice but yours. And so it is into your hands that I commit my spirit. Do you want freedom like that? You can be free to love God with your whole heart, free to love your neighbor. Then you need that kind of king. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for being who you are. Thank you for joining power beyond what we could imagine, power even to defeat death not in some spiritual way, but in real time and space ways. Join to this kind of amazing love that you would remain faithful to your Father even when every voice told you that you weren't enough. Thank you for loving us. We pray that many people around the world including in this room, would come to love you for the first time today. We come to love you more deeply now than ever before. Amen.